1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I am your co host, Rob Hadley, people and culture strategist specializing in DEI and people analytics. And I brought a friend, and I always bring a friend. Her name is Nadia Butt. She's an organizational <laughs> development and belonging strategist. Nadia, great to see you. How are you?
2: Good. I love being all on this like little ride that we got going on here. <laughs> this what, little adventure.
1: A two year, yeah. Hey. Yeah,
2: it's like two year stint.
1: I I, I didn't know I was not going down this rabbit hole, but like so oh boy. the the thing that I so I I just popped on, just saw you. You know, you got a nice sheen to your hair, a nice glow. Thank you. It's like yeah. looking good and, and so it looks really good. And I was gonna tell you that you know how like I've been I had this really awful haircut a few hair- weeks ago. Yeah,
2: yeah,
1: <laughs> that I just wanted to report to our listeners as well and make sure, like, let them know because uh, I know they're worried about me that it's almost yeah. long enough to cut again, and so I'm going to get a professional haircut. You know,
2: are and... you? Did you find someone?
1: Well, I have someone. I was just it was it was the holidays, and so I really I had no alternative. I had to run out and get a haircut, and so okay. that's where this this whole adventure started. So. Uh, so, oh,
2: so it wasn't like your normal person that you go to.
1: Yeah, that you, yeah. Oh, no, this, I, this this lovely okay. this lovely young lady. It was pretty clear she had very limited experience in cutting hair, and so, okay. you know, but she was nice. I gave her, you know, I yeah. gave her a nice tip for it was the holidays. But then I got home and I was like, this is going to take me a month or two to, yeah. to really work out. So, okay. but well, but you look great. But your hair Thanks. looks great.
2: Thank you. I put a little curl <laughs> to it, <laughs> a little bounce.
1: Nice, uh, nice. Well, what do nice. we got today, Nadia?
2: So, Rob, this week on Inclusive Collective, we're going to be talking to DEI consultant for the theater, DeWanda Smith-Soder. We'll also discuss the hiring of a new coach for the NFL's New England Patriots. Awesome. Um, we'll go back to Utah, your home state, for more on um, an anti-DEI bill there. And as always, we'll be ranting and raving. Awesome. Awesome. But first, should we get to the deets?
1: Yeah, let's get to the deets. Where do you want to start?
2: I'm going to start. So, big news last week in the NFL for those that don't know. Um so I'm talking about the American Football League. Um the National so the Football National
1: League, I should Football say. League. The NFL <laughs> <laughs> went out of business in 1967.
2: Okay, but so the 69. NFL. <laughs> so Folks at uh, my home area, New England Patriots, the head coach, Bill Belichick, I I believe decided to leave a bit abruptly. It seemed abrupt from what I gather, or at least before his contract was up. Uh, Would you say that that's right, Rob?
1: I would say the writing was on the wall there.
2: Okay. Yeah. Um, Maybe that's like for a different episode. But, you know, so with his departure, leaves the coaching position open for owner Robert Kraft to fill. Did you know that I met Robert Kraft at LaGuardia Airport like a decade ago? Did I tell you that story? Yeah, that's another episode we'll share. (laughs) So the one Gerard Mayo is the next heir. Um, Mayo is the first person picked to fill one of the NFL's eight openings for head coaches. He is 37 years old, becomes the NFL's youngest head coach and only the fourth black one in the 32-team league. I will also add that when announcing this in a press conference, owner Kraft says in a U.S. Today article, quote, when he was asked about race being maybe one of the factors in hiring, in the hiring process, he, quote, says, I'm really colorblind in terms of I know that what, what I feel on Sunday when we lose. He added that he hired Mayo because the coach was the best person for the job. It, it's simply coincidental that Mayo was black. And then, quote, he also says he happens to be a man of color. Um, but I chose him because I believe he's best to do the job. Mayo wasn't having any of that. And uh, wow. I actually think was really brave in, in his response. He contradicted Kraft and responded with, quote, I do see color because I believe if you don't see color, you, you can't see racism. So I will pause there. I know that you're not a huge Pats fan, but I wanted to ask you any thoughts regarding this play. Yeah,
1: I didn't actually see that. I didn't actually see that piece of it because as you were talking about Robert Kraft, oh, and let's start with just saying, like, finally, we made this a sports show, right? Like, <laughs> I have my football here. I think we I did that hold, last season. <laughs> I can hold my football while I talk, right? So sure. I, I had not seen that. And so that's great, right? Because as you were talking about Kraft's introduction is the fact that he's colorblind. <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah. I was having some... I was, I, was, I was not feeling it. Um, and so, like, you know, it's great. And the background is that he's been considered a top candidate, uh, at least for the last year. The Broncos had interviewed him as well. The Crafts made that decision that they didn't want to let him get away, so they gave him almost a head coach-in-waiting title. Like, that caused some conflict within the organization between Belichick and, and Mayo is what some of the reporting is. But, you know, the, the other thing I think about is sometimes black head coaches get really bad situations and so this roster is pretty awful, the, the one that he's inheriting. And so he's, you know, mm. fans need to, to be patient and uh. give him some time to make sure that they turn it around. But, you know, the article that you sent me talked about Boston as a city where this is important because of its checkered uh, relations with regard to players and uh, their fans in terms of fans not being the most racially friendly city, yes. uh, especially yep. to some of their bigger sports stars. So it's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, and wish him luck, but not too much luck, because <laughs> you're not a Pats
2: fan. Yeah, I I would agree. I for some reason there there seems to have been, from what I gather, and again I'm not like huge on the hiring practices within the NFL, but there seems to have been some form of succession planning going on behind the scenes. Mayo uh, apparently an outstanding middle linebacker for the Patriots. He spent his entire eight-year career with the Pats. After it selected him tenth overall in the um, 2008 NFL Draft out of Tennessee. So, you know, he's, he's well-regarded, I think, within the, the league, within the team. It seems like it was a no-brainer for promotional advancement for him. But like you said, we have to be patient. Pats Nation is known to be really harsh. So <laughs> let's see how receptive they are to Mayo, and I do wish him well as well.
1: Yeah, I think, and the NFL is a great example. If you're doing trainings to talk about representation, and so, and and not having necessarily representational parity between your workforce and then the people that have the top jobs. So, if you said that there's four out of you know 32 coaching positions are black men, that means that you know that's about 12 percent, 12 and a half percent whereas about 70% of the players are black. And it's been that way since the 1970s in terms Mm -hmm. of, like, that disproportion. So it's a good example of underrepresentation. And, you know, so they're trying to do better. They're putting a lot of things in place, but they have a long way to go.
2: Yeah, I'll just wrap up this deed with a quote from American University professor of sports law, Dr. Duru, where he states in an Anscape article, quote, this is an iconic franchise replacing the greatest coach in NFL history, historically, those jobs have rarely gone to black candidates. End quote. I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And I would dispute how great of a franchise it is.
2: <laughs> so, all right. Anyway, all <laughs> moving right. on.
1: Next up, the uh, I'm going to double dip, which I don't usually do, but I was so. Pissed off. You talked to me this week, this past week, Nadia, about the spectacle here in Utah that I witnessed. Right. So, Mm -hmm. this is from the Salt Lake City Tribune. There's a House Bill 261. It does three things, Nadia. So it's the anti-DEI bill that I alluded to that lawmakers were crafting in the previous show. So, it prohibits trainings in higher education. Some of the concepts uh, that cannot be trained on. Are ready for this? Are privilege, bias, either conscious or Mm -hmm. unconscious. Uh, any idea that meritocracy is racist or, sexi- or sexist cannot talk about systemic racism or anything that provokes resentment between races. So, you know, even acknowledging that one race has been perhaps not great to another, that could pr- promote resentment. And so that's banned. And it cannot be oh, actually wow. called. They can't use the words diversity, equity, and inclusion, because if mm. you just say don't say those words, it'll go away. It prohibits personal characteristics from being considered in financial assistance and that any, and any support services for students that cannot be based, they cannot be based on identity. So if there was an office to support Black students or LGBTQIA students, uh, that support has to be extended to all students. So I was watching because my son was sick. So I was watching online for the hearing. Um, it was very clear that, that the proponents of the bill didn't really understand what DEI is or does, uh, especially on the co- on a college campus, and they hadn't talked to students, they hadn't talked to people that run these programs, there were public comments, and you might be happy to know that DEI was compared to Hitler, Pol Pot. Um, oh, <laughs> it was, uh, you know, Jesus apparently was not, would not be for anti-DEI, neither would Martin Luther King, according to some of the folks that spoke, and, okay. uh, you know, what, what else, what else was fun? Oh, and then Christopher Columbus. Like some people were very upset that Christopher Columbus, uh, <laughs> is being now presented as a somewhat negative figure. So I didn't oh, know, okay. I didn't know, I didn't know Chris Columbus had supporters. So anyway, yeah. um, you know, the, it, this bill, uh, you know, it will pass. It will, it, it will just lead to negative outcomes for underrepresented students on Utah's campuses. And so, yeah. uh, so I don't know, you've, you've heard me whinging about it. What, what, yeah. what does that bring to mind for you?
2: Yeah, well, uh, you know, you d- you definitely were um, upset this week. Uh, of course, um, you know, I, I understand why. Um, it's a contentious bill indeed. I think we're really in interesting times where our actions are going to start to be tested. So, like, for those of us, and I think there are many who that do truly believe in equity and fairness, the values of DE&I, you know, I think we I think it's a reminder for us to not be distracted by the noise like we still can continue this work without the labels. Mm. Right. We can embed this work in our everyday practices. We can role model this work and hold people accountable to it. We can create the systems and mechanisms to execute DEI without calling it DEI. It will be hard. But my I think my optimistic self really believes that it can be done. And so those folks that are pushing back on it, I think we just have to continue to to push through.
1: Yeah, and I, and and certainly I think that the one piece of valid uh, information or, or talking point that they had is that that DEI has perhaps not accomplished everything that it hopes to, uh, and, and right, and then there are some things that you know tactically that can be changed. Uh, but at the same time, we know that these these offices are actually well underfunded, right? Like, mm-hmm. They they are not given the support, right? They're like, especially on like, a smaller campus, you'll get like a, a person that is responsible for equity. They'll be like the mm-hmm. assistant. They'll be like the dean for equity. They'll be given no resources. And then they'll you know, come back later and they'll say, why didn't you accomplish more, right? Like like right. DEI doesn't work because you didn't accomplish anything, even though the administration was against their efforts and didn't provide them with the resources. So, so it's just... I I totally agree with you, Nadia. It's a great point and it's a motivational point that there's ways to accomplish a lot of things we want to without the actual terms. But it's just the fight that they're taking to this is like, it's just a little bit disheartening, right? That that it's the most important thing for them to, uh, to make sure that some of these things and these ideas and concepts can't even be talked about.
2: Yeah, right. Totally. And, um, you know, I hope things change. I'm I'm optimistic. I will say, I think maybe because I had a conversation with an HR leader this week who was like, I don't even know why we have to call it something separate. Like she, she, someone who has been in practice for 20, over 20 years. And she was like, this is just how we like work. This is just how we treat people. And we just need to be better and recognize that there are biases within practices. And so I think maybe that's probably why I'm a little hopeful is it's really easy to get, you know, you look at people who have the power in putting these policies in place and these bills in place that negate the work that we do. But I think at the end of the day, hu- humanity really seeks to have more fairness, more equity, and people don't want to be discriminated against. And so I, I, I don't know, maybe this week, <laughs> talk to me next week. My feelings might change and I might be like, the world sucks. But right now I'm in a hopeful place. And I think the people in Utah, especially those folks at the universities um, or in the government offices, where this bill will be, you know, it make a large impact. I say, just if you believe in those values, like keep going, don't give up. You don't need to have the labels to practice what DEI preaches.
1: Right, right. All right, Nadia. Well, thanks for uh, listening to me uh, complain. You'll get to hear more of that over the next few weeks, I'm sure but uh, thanks for the the hopeful message. We're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back with cultural consultant, Dewanda Smith-Soder, stay with us. Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. Our guest today is cultural consultant, Dewanda Smith-Soder. Dewanda is an equity, diversity and inclusion strategist whose work involves change management, talent, organizational development and training. Specific to this work is her research and thesis, theater as a diversity intervention. She holds an MA in psychology and a BS in health and human services. In addition to being a certified diversity professional, she's also certified in proceed change management, instruction and development, human interaction, emotional intelligence, and is an adjunct professor of psychology. All the things that I should get certified in, but haven't. So, uh, (laughs) Duanda Smith-Soder, welcome to Inclusive Collective. It's so great to see you. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you, Rob. It's great to see you all as well. It's so great to finally meet you. And and thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, I'm I, like I said to you earlier, before we started, I'm fascinated by your background and the work that you do. Can you share a little bit more about yourself and what led you to doing um, the you know, idea in the theater, um, specifically like, I would love to know what were some of the things that you were observing in the theater space and maybe some like disparities or inequities that you were observing. I'd love to hear about that as well.
3: Okay. Well, um, I'll start with me. I think I, um, I know I was born to be an actress and uh... <laughs> I love <laughs> it. So, um, so theater is a part of my DNA. I graduated from high school with anticipation of going to college and majoring in theater, but my lovely parents had other ideas. And so I went to school and got a BA in, in business. And, and I worked primarily in the corporate arena for several or many years, always with the thought of trying to get back into the theater at some point in time. And of course, those thoughts were all rooted in getting back on stage, if you would. I got a call from a theater, you know, this was shortly as we were going through the George Floyd situation and all those types of things that were going on, and I got a call from a theater who said they needed some help with uh, a situation that was going on at their theater, and I stepped over to support them on the organizational side of the mm. theater, and then the theater shut down during the covid When they reopened, they opened back up with uh, Hair, which uh, is a very, very uh, interesting decision to make coming out of a a pandemic and the George Ford situation, all that. But anyway, um, that was just after the uh, actors, BIPOC actors on Broadway had written a letter to Broadway. You may remember the Dear White Theater letter Mm. that that came out with the... Manifesto uh, mm-hmm. of all of those folks talking about the need for Broadway to do a better job in supporting hip actors and creatives, mm-hmm. and yep. uh, and so the the actors came back to the theater with a very with much higher expectations in terms of the way they were being treated and what was going on for them in the theater. And we had sort of a mutiny in this show, and so the theater that I was working with said can you come over to the creative side and help us be, you know, with folks? Mm. And so I did, I came over and um, uh, unbeknownst to me, the process that I used with the next show to, and that whole production to bring them in and help them create the atmosphere of the culture that they wanted for that show mm-hmm. turned out to be what I'm doing. now, yeah. And so that's how I got, you know, got back to theater and got specifically into this cultural competency space.
1: Was the, so the mutiny was on hair? The
3: mutiny was on hair.
1: So, okay. Yeah, so <laughs> then for those of us that are less uh, inclined toward the theater, tell us what what are some of the things that, uh, what what are just some examples? Does not have to be specific, but like things that came out in hair that people were upset about in terms of the way that they were being uh,
3: <laughs> Well, I think the number one thing was, uh, you know, their need to be seen and heard as acting professionals from a directorial standpoint and also in terms of response and the theater taking action whenever there were some challenges that they had as they went through the production and they were not getting the response nor the support
1: Mm -hmm. that
3: they thought they should be getting. And so it just really sort of disintegrated in terms of the actors' experience at this particular theater. And, of course, not only were the actors not happy with that as they walked away, but the theater was mm. concerned as well about, you know, folks walking away from their, or- their organization having had this, this experience. Oh, interesting. Gotcha. So
2: your, your trademarked affinity speech Uh, Space, which are facilitated sessions grounded in the principles of inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility, um, which I believe center, um, from what I read, like agency and safety and transparency within community. And I know you can't give too many specific examples, but are there some of the important cultural competencies that actors need to know or that you coach them on how does that play out on stage? Can you like provide an, uh, like a particular example of something?
3: Yeah, yeah. So there are, I like to say that uh, in terms of the cultural competency work, there are three sort of three pillars. One is from the creative side of the work and that's working directly with what I call the people behind this, the, the table, the directors, the choreographers, all those types of folks. And, and specifically focusing on the work to make sure that the work itself it has any elements of culture within that work are both authentic and
2: relevant in terms of, you know, how they appear or go on the stage. Does that also mean like selecting the actors that come on stage? If, like if, recruitment and so forth?
3: Yeah, in some cases in the, in, the re- in the regional space, in the regional theater space, I often, uh, my process starts with the play selection. I'm actually in the room when the director and that team are identifying the shows that they're going to bring in for the season. Oh, cool. um, I step into the casting room to support them. And if I'm not in the casting room, I am available to them as they start to work and make selections on individuals. We look at the play itself from, in terms of the script and we, we drill down into each character to, to identify You know, prior to casting, is this a a character that could be played by someone from a specific culture or background or whatever? And then, and then actually moving into the rehearsal space. So, in the rehearsal space is where we have the affinity space piece. Um, That it usually happens the first day of rehearsal. Everybody who is touching the work is in the room. That includes creatives, cast, crew, musicians, whomever is working on it. And, and the Affinity Space is a one-hour facilitated conversation between myself and the full production. And what I'm doing in that time is I'm asking them sp- some specific, giving them some specific sentence stems that they finish by letting everybody in the room know what their needs, what are, what their wants are. Mm. You know, I basically I've coined a couple of phrases that I use during affinity space. One is we're building the container that we would like to live in for the next several weeks, months or whatever the run of the show is. And then I also give them a metaphor of the sandbox. You know, how do you want to play in the sandbox? Uh, You know, and you know, these folks come from all over the world many times yeah. to put this show on. And so I say to them, we're going to proverbially eat, drink and sleep with each other for the next several months. Yeah. So, it's true. Yeah. you know, let's talk about what that looks like. And in, in that hour, they create that container and that's what the, the affinity space is all about.
2: Oh, very cool. Uh,
1: We should create containers in business, too. We can do that, too. We really should.
3: We really should. Well, you know, (laughs) as a matter of fact, in one of the first theater that I mentioned before that I started this work in, one of the things that we recently got at the end of last season as we were going back and getting some feedback and assessing this season, one of the pieces of of feedback we got from the staff and the actual employees of the theater was, why
2: can't we have us fit in these spaces? Oh wow, <laughs> isn't that interesting? Yeah, like they, yes. the desire for that was, right. was big. Yeah, right. yeah that,
1: that, leads, that leads to the question I was gonna ask, which was, you know, so you're, you're working on new productions, right, new creative works on and off Broadway within the organization, touring productions. Where are you seeing the most action today? Where, where's the need the biggest right now in all these different areas?
3: The, the largest space right now, or the most prominent space right now, is hair, makeup, and wigs.
1: Mm. Uh,
3: and that's not only happening for me and my work, but from the industry in general. I mean, just recently, Actors' Equity uh, made some amendments to their guidelines around hair, makeup, and wigs, and particularly targeted towards BIPOC actors, mm. um, as you know, we have different textures. We have you know all of the complexities of of complexion, if you would, and uh, and so there are there were a lot of things that had not been addressed historically in terms of how do you design a wig for a BIPOC individual? How mm-hmm. do you how do you support them with protecting their hair as they wear these wigs? I mean, sometimes I'm they, actors generally do eight shows a week. You know, for up three months or on a regional situation, but in on Broadway, it could be years that mm-hmm. they are going to be living in and out of these wigs. So that's the space right now. As a matter of fact, I just finished, I'm making a re- recommendation right now to the artistic director and general manager of a theater to bring guidelines into their hair wig and uh, wardrobe area. And wardrobe is another piece of that. Now mm. you know the wardrobe area is the most intimate place. That an actor interacts with a the theater. You know, imagine going into a space where, in a room where there's a designer and there's three or four seamstress and there's a wardrobe manager and you're standing there in your underwear. Yeah. 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 And they're touching your body. And they're commenting yeah.
1: and talking about yeah, trying to get things you fit. fitted. Yeah, yeah right, of
2: right. It's very. So,
1: I would. I wouldn't have the. I couldn't handle that.
2: I couldn't yeah. either. <laughs> Not at all.
3: <laughs> well, and that's the inter- And that's the intersection where we see so many aspects of diversity and inclusion. Right. There's gender issues. There's generational issues. There. There is, you know, cultural issues. All of those things converge in wigs, mm. wardrobe, makeup, and hair.
2: Yeah, of course. So thank you for sharing that. And I'm also just curious, like, we think of the actors and the production and the staff and so forth. And then how do you coach or help these theater companies to think about attracting a more diverse, broader audience? Mm, Is that something that theater companies think about in terms of attracting different people to come watch the theater? Yes,
3: definitely. I also do work with the marketing departments uh, many times uh, from in terms of a specific show and the cultural aspects of that and the marketing aspect of bringing bringing diverse people into the theater. We look at things like, you know, how do we market this particular show? Mm -hmm. You know, um, perfect example, I did Cabaret last season. And we had a black Sally Bowles, who's the star of Cabaret. Uh, You know, most people who come to the theater to see Cabaret are expecting someone who looks like Liza Minnelli, right? Right. And uh, when they see someone who totally is the opposite, then there's the question of, you know, what's going on here and, you know, why is this, or could this really happen and all those kinds of things. And so there's a combination of doing research both kind of uh, dramaturgical research, if you would, around the time and place that this show took place, how are we going to position it. Um, There is the aspect of writing information about the show in the playbill, in the program, when people come in and what do they see. I've even had to write talking points for Mm -hmm. the actors and whomever is going to be interviewed by the media to make sure that we keep on track and we focus on you know, our message and not get down into the weeds in some other type of message that won't be helpful for the marketing nor bringing new people to, to the audience. And they're working with the marketing team to get that information out there, connecting with uh, various communities, who haven't normally come to this theater yeah, sure. and yeah. how do we reach out to them? You know, I, I right now have a plan with one of my theaters for this season to do some community contact. We're going out and actually to community organizations, sitting, having lunch with them, talking to them about, you know, their interest in the theater and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, getting some feedback from the audiences too when they come in or when they leave the theater as well. It's very helpful.
1: dewanda i i have a three-part question so let's see if we can keep track of all these things (laughs) (laughs) so many
2: Uh, here's (laughs) Here's rob's curveballs here they come (laughs) you told me
3: this was going to be easy (laughs) and fun
1: (laughs) who who asks a three-part question right that's that's one more than you're supposed to right one more than you're supposed to all right so uh so the first thing is Talk about resources that are helpful that you've that you found or either a book or whatever that, you know, help people understand diversity, equity, inclusion, and creative spaces. Along that line, if if that resource didn't help them, when does someone, when do you get involved? When is a good time to contact you or to bring you into a space like this? And then my last question is, uh, what's your favorite musical? So Ooh, uh, take those in one. any order that's you want.
2: Question. Oh, okay. <laughs> those are good questions, I <laughs> right. got to say. Right. <laughs>
3: So, so resource-wise, you know, one of the one of the pieces of this work that I consider to be unique to my process is that I I have incorporated sort of that coaching in the moment, you know, supporting people in the situation. So the the, the third pillar that I tend to talk about earlier is triage, what I call triage, mm. and triage, once we've had that affinity space, everybody walks away happy. we're going to play in the same sandbox well, and then inadvertently, something goes wrong, something goes sideways. So I'm available to all of my theater clients 24 seven, in the event that those things come up. So a lot of the resources that folks get, specifically on the creative side in this work, is direct coaching. Um, and it's moment to mm. moment, depending upon the specific situation. And then there are things that I point them to from there to get additional self development. One one book that I absolutely love, and I'm going to grab it off the shelf because I always forget her name, is uh, "Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria." Mm. Rob, you probably know this book.
1: Mm. I don't know this book. I don't. It know was
3: written. Book. It was written by Beverly Daniel Tatum who is, uh, I believe she's at Brown University, but anyway, this book looks at all of the cultural implications almost for every race that there is out there in terms of supporting people and understanding how we develop our racial identity. Mm. And so many of my challenges that come up do have race at the root of them. And so it's really, that triage session is a really condensed, very quick, very skills focused for and because the objective. The other thing that I want to make sure that I do is not to impede the process of the theater. Once the right. shows, once a director starts directing a show, the train has left the station. They don't have time for you know someone to have a meltdown and not be able to get back to the stage. They can't afford to have something that causes the whole you know show to be impacted and that kind of thing. So, I'm quickly coaching getting people back up their feet and on their feet and moving forward. Another model that I use, and it's a model that I have developed myself, and that's the box model to help people understand how we filter and put people in a box and how people filter us and put us in a box. And then, you know, building your box, making sure you stay in your box, <laughs> and then letting other people know what your box is. So. Right. That's yeah. a lot of what, what I'm doing so most of it is coaching again, because the theater process is in the moment. We don't, I don't have time to come in with my PowerPoint presentation and my, yeah. you know, right. all I kind of stop. It's just right. like, yeah, you know, I get a call at 1130 at night with an actress crying on the phone saying, I don't think I can get on stage tomorrow because of this thing that happened tonight in wow. the performance. Mm-hmm. Wow. So,
1: wow. Well, I uh, appreciate that. Was, oh, and last, but, yeah, favorite musical. Question.
3: Oh, same, Sweet Charity. I was Sweet Charity Valentine in high school. So, oh, you know, that's if already. they can see me now, then we'll <laughs> gang on <of mine. laughs> <laughs> I love it.
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, Dewana cool. Smith Soder, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for those uh, resource recommendations as well. I'll check out, uh, uh, what is it, Sweet Charity? As Sweet well, when it, if, it, if it tours through, it's all. Yeah, channel. yeah. If it comes through, but uh, yeah, definitely, definitely come to uh, and and help out some of our uh, theaters here in uh, in Utah as well. Uh, and that, Boston, that, and Boston, yeah. So if, <laughs> so, so please, uh, hopefully can I do both with
3: some. those in the summer turn? Yes,
1: <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Thanks so much.
3: Yes, so you're good welcome. To meet you. Thank you. You as well.
1: All right, stay with us, folks. We we'll right back. For our calm reflections and raves and rants. Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. We just finished chatting with DEI, with theater, DEI consultant, Dewanda Smith-Soder. Nadia, do you know? So one, I know Dewanda from... Do you? We are both... Well, yeah, I forgot to mention that she's also an impact, measurement, and DEI uh, advisor. Uh, for the entrepreneurs forum yeah nice. uh, that's where she gets to work with a uh, with a very handsome dei consultant
2: uh, <laughs> and named rob adley <laughs> yeah
1: i don't know if that's i don't know, I that's don't know if that's thing. how
2: she would describe i don't you, know but if, sure. yeah
1: that's why i didn't want to have her on when we talked about that all right your favorite musical yeah. nadia
2: oh oh that was being put on the spot my favorite i mean i love hamilton but there's like i you know rent wicked like they're so good. I saw one recently. I can't remember the name. I just saw it last year with my sister. Oh, shoot! I'm gonna have to follow up. I can't remember the name. For I'll
1: tell you what. I, I, did I tell you mine?
2: Yeah, please. I
1: saw the sh- first musical I ever saw was Chicago. Okay. Uh, they're in. Uh, they're on Broadway in uh, the. In the lead role was Jasmine Guy. You know who Jasmine Guy is? Yeah. A
2: different, world?
1: different world? Different yeah, world. Yeah, of course. Talk I about know. a show that needs a reboot, right? Like, so, I
2: mean for sure. So
1: yeah, I was I was I was in on that one. So that's um, so cool. Any uh any any reflections on Wait, I'm not done about? with my favorite
2: musicals. <laughs> I also saw Waitress, which was really good. Okay. And I can't think of the names of the one that I'm like, I don't know what I can think of it, but I will follow up it, if anyone cares <laughs> email you me can... and I'll find it and let you know. So I, I appreciated her ref, kind of sharing with us and her reflections on the triage part of the work that she does. Um, it, it even though to me it, it sounds like reactive where I think that that exists. Like I think our work is very reactionary to, mm-hmm. um, you know acts of things that happen discrimination bias whatever but i also think there's a proactive component in it where she's coaching folks and so i appreciate the two glimpses of that right like there's the triage which is like you know supporting folks in the moment of things that are happening related to de and i and then she's also kind of focused on the the proactive processes and steps that happen within the the you know the the space of the production and and the theater company and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, what did you think?
1: As one of the first things she said, you talked about building the box, right? Everyone coming together and you know, discussing, and talking about explicitly the agreements around inclusion that, and the that, that folks have with each other. I just thought it was, could be very applicable in agile spaces, right? So as, as work becomes more agile and teams come together for shorter amounts of time, right? A lot of folks from outside organizations are pulled in for different projects, people like me, having those discussions and you know to to make sure that uh, everyone's on the same page about what the expectations are and what they need from each other, which yep. we pe- people do in different forms. I just think that the need is starting to become greater. And so some of the things that she talked about could be very impactful.
2: Yes, that's right. I did remember the <laughs> musical. There's two. Six, which my brother just reminded me of, which was okay. awesome. If you haven't seen it, you have to see it. Okay. And then um, I think it's called Hades Town. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, uh, I saw that last year with my sister. So good. I'm a, I didn't know. Him. I think I'm a musical you person. You are. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't name you?
1: three. My musicals. brother and
2: sister-in-law are huge. Huge, huge musical piece. And so is my sister. Like it's oh, so nice. I think because of them, that's why I go often. But um, nice, nice. Yeah. Well right?
1: I think we I think, yeah, we we all yeah, but it's, so we'll have Duanda back. We'll talk more, we'll talk totally. more theater.
2: I think so. We'll have to. I <laughs> want to know more about sweet charity. So
1: yeah, yeah. All right, let's talk to let's do uh let's do some rants and raves. I'm gonna let's go first. It. All right. I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna rant, uh I'm gonna talk about a guy named Dean Phillips. Do you know who Dean Phillips is? I
2: don't know. Who is he? All right.
1: Dean Phillips is the Minnesota congressman running for president uh, oh, okay. on the Democratic side. He made a change on his website this past week. He took Wait, out...
2: against Biden? Is that just yes, a yes, Democratic side? It's, it's, oh, it's, okay. it's a
1: long shot bit. But sure. he took out diversity, equity, and inclusion from his website, oh. replaced it with the very odd and uh, equity and restorative justice. It turns out, Nadia, that he may have been motivated by receiving a $1 million check from Bill Ackman. The billionaire uh, hedge fund investor that must not do a hell of a lot of investing these days because he is yep. and his pal Elon must spend all their time tweeting about DEI. So, yeah. you know, Bill Ackman, Nadia, yeah. from his recent efforts to get caught in gay fired as the president of Harvard yeah. for his punching down and working to get college students doxed from their jobs and internship. You may not know this or, or, or forgotten, Nadia, that during the pandemic, very early, Bill Ackman went on CNBC and he cried. Mm-hmm. And he caused a market panic. The market went down about a thousand points very quickly. Turns out he made a lot of money because he had shorted a lot of the companies. So he's a, he's a profiteer of division, right? And yeah. not a good person and not a person that someone who wants to be or wants to present themselves as the moral alternative to Joe Biden for liberals yeah. should be taking money from.
2: That's a really good rant. <laughs> Is he friends with Stephen Miller? Like, what's happening?
1: Yes, they're all friends. They're all friends. All
2: right. Well, thank you for that. I will wrap up with a rave. So this is a little bit of older news, but it just got brought to my attention. This came out in August that airlines will be required to make bathrooms more accessible. All new single aisle planes with at least 125 seats will need to have accessible lavatories. Restrooms will need to be large enough for a traveler with a, living with a disability and an attendant to be able to approach um, or enter or maneuver if necessary. These changes, even though um, some are starting now, they're really not a mandatory to be taken into effect until the beginning of 2033, um, but they all have to be in compliance by two thousand. Uh, 2000 by 2035 per the ruling. Just really good news for people that, you know, I, I think of folks living with disabilities that might be in a wheelchair or just might not be able to maneuver easily. I think of my mom now who needs to be in a wheelchair taken to throughout the airport. Just um, her knees are really bad. So I really appreciate that there's enough room that they're th- starting to consider this. I wish it didn't take another 10 years to yeah, become yeah. compliant. But <laughs> You know, it's the small wins here.
1: <laughs> Put a small win on the board. Inclusion yeah. in 2035. That was, that's, the, that's the win.
2: That's right. Well, Rob, thank you for another wonderful week. That's it for Inclusive Collective. Uh, just a reminder that if you're looking for DE&I and workplace culture strategy consulting, problem solving, or training, you can reach out to me, uh, Nadia at Nadia at NazConsultants.com and Rob at Rob at TacanoConsulting.com. Inclusive Collective is a production of Refilion Media and edited by Ari Mathay. We'd love to hear from you folks, so please send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at refillion.com. You can find us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Um, Please be sure to follow us on LinkedIn. Um, We do have some fun things that we post there throughout the week. You can also uh, subscribe and rate. Uh, We love the five stars. So wherever you get your podcasts, please do that. Thanks again to our guest, DeWanda Smith Soder. We will be back next week. Be well.
1: Thanks, Nadia.